Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, I'm super excited to share the good news that I have written another book, How to Pay Your Mortgage Off in 10 Years, responds to the cost of living crisis that many people find themselves in. Whether you are paying off a mortgage, you've paid off a mortgage, you aspire to buy a house and have a mortgage, or you know someone who does have a mortgage, this book will have lots of frugal tips and tricks as well as some finance hacks for you. Thank you so much. Yuma Frugalistas and welcome. Today I have a special guest and of course all of my guests are special. This guest today is someone who is a key advocate for financial independence and who, as a mum of two small children, understands the financial costs of raising a child. But first, I have a favour to ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful for you, please pay it forward by sharing it with a friend. And even better, please follow the Joyful Frugalista podcast. The issue of the cost of raising children is something I feel we really need to talk about. I'm a mum to two boys, one 11 and the second a teenager, and he hates me referring to him as a teenager, which really just proves he is in fact one. And while I am a frugalista, the costs certainly do add up. This year alone, we've spent probably around $5,000, and that's, uh, I guess, a fairly conservative estimate on orthodontic costs. And probably that again on sports, because the youngest has decided to take up competitive table tennis. My guest today is someone who understands the costs of raising kids, and she's written a book about it. Hailing from Canada, Anna Christina is a financial educator and author of Kids Ain't Cheap. She works in the financial technology industry and is co-host of Australia's podcast, The Get Rich Slow Club. She also documents her journey to financial independence online. In her free time, and I'm amazed she has free time, she loves to adventure, spend time with family, play board games. Yay to that. Definitely very frugal. She's traveled to over 50 countries and she now calls Australia home. And she can't live without cheese. Well, I can't either. So that is fabulous. And today we're going to talk about her book, Kids Ain't Cheap, How to Plan Financially for Parenthood and Your Family's Future published by Major Street Publishers. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, and congratulations on your book. Wow, what a really well-needed topic. Thank you. Congrats to you as well. I'm very excited. I haven't got my hands on it yet, but I can't wait to pay down my mortgage. So (laughs) massive props. Definitely going to have to fix that. Definitely going to have to make sure you get a copy of How to Pay Off Your Mortgage in 10 Years, which is, of course, possible, even with kids. And kids, of course, are incredibly expensive. There's been a report that's recently been released as a government report, actually, talking about how women are about $2 million worse off as as a result of having kids. What do you think of this figure? Is this about in the ballpark for how women are impacted? Yeah, it's really interesting. When I was doing research for this book, I came across a, a whole bunch of different stats depending on who you talk to. And this one's really interesting because it looks at women earning $1 million less than Australian men across their career. And it kind of looks at if this working pattern continued from, and and they're kind of basing it on 25-year-old women today and who have one child. And what ends up happening often is that women decide to return to work at less days or less hours, and that impacts their earning capacity over their lifetime, which 
it has been estimated to $2 million um, in comparison to the average 25-year-old man. So that sounds insane when you think it over $2 million. Wow. Yeah. That a lot of it's probably in superannuation as well. It has that impact as well, that rolling impact. I haven't really looked deeply into act- the actual numbers of it. I just kind of looked at the overall research. But that's a huge part of it as well that people often forget to consider. Women earn around $168,000 in their super at the age of 65, whereas men have around $208,000. So that's a difference of 40K between those two. And you can kind of see how that compounds over time, especially when you're reaching retirement years. Women are more likely to be homeless and in poverty. And all of that kind of goes back to those early years where often predominantly women stay home to raise their kids and how that can affect their earning capacity over their lifetime and their retirement. So it's an important topic to be talked about early on when a lot of parents, again, specifically women, it's lovely to see more fathers in terms of heterosexual couples staying home as well with the kids. Predominantly, women still stay home. They put their careers on hold. They have less earning capacity. They can't grow their career. They can't grow their superannuation due to those choices. And it impacts them in the long run. Yeah, they're all huge issues too. And in my case, I actually continued working. I had mm-hmm. the minimum kind of a time off that I kind of could and went back to work. And in fact, my second child was born when I was posted overseas. So I really couldn't take that much leave. But the interesting thing too, I find is with the research on this, it's not just whether you take time out in terms of the impact on your childhood. There's this kind of stereotype that because you are now a mother, you are no longer productive. It's kind of like this assumption that you suddenly got a baby brain (laughs) somehow. Indeed. And it's referred to as the motherhood penalty. So unfortunately, women are more likely to reduce their earnings, I guess, by 55% on average. Whereas in the US, men's income actually increased by 6%. And it often comes down to those societal stereotypes where women are distracted and they're mothers and they have other things that they need to think about. Whereas fathers are sometimes seen as predominantly being head of the household, having to make money, more competent. And we see that. And it's again, like I said, it's referred to as the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood bonus. So when I read that data, I was blown away at seeing how society actually looks at mothers versus fathers and their earning capacity around that. And it's fascinating too, because I think more dads want to be more involved now too. So in my former workplace, when they put more flexible working arrangements in place, and this is a number of years ago now, it was obviously Mm -hmm. pre-COVID, which accelerated everything in a big way. But they did that because it had come through the women's leadership agenda. But interestingly, more men than women took up on this offer. Yeah. And we see actually with countries that have better parental leave for fathers, they are more likely to take it up and they see the societal impact that that has. Fathers are then more involved in their kids' lives. They feel more connected. Kids have better outcomes in the long run as well because they aren't just connecting and relying on their mother, but they have a father who's much more involved in their everyday lives. Having both parents, if you come in it from a two-parent home involved, is actually really important for kids and their well-being as well. So seeing parental leave be equally distributed across families is much more impactful. And and like you said, you know, it's it's kind of important. 
Yeah, exactly. I do think that parenthood, at least for me, really kind of crystallized mm-hmm. what was important in, in a really different way. It really made me question too some of my career choices and whether that's what I really wanted to be doing. It, yeah, it's hard. That that juggle is real. And I find that like on a personal note, like obviously I'm interested. I've been looking at this data, but on a personal note, I'm really career driven. I'm, you know, interested in 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 increasing my income and getting ahead and investing and creating a life that I want. But at the same time, I'm also juggling the desire and, and wants of being home with my kids as well. And I, I'm not the only person that feels this way. So many, so many parents do so many mothers and fathers. And so it's um, really important to kind of find that balance because for each of it's, it's very different, right? Well, yeah, it is different, but yet it's the same. <laughs> there are some similar <laughs> yeah, struggles. Yeah. We all think our kids are never going to get sick. They're never going to have lots of clothes to wash and um, they're never yeah. going to be expensive. <laughs> yeah, but they are. They but are. They are indeed. <laughs> it is just the reality. But you do have the benefit of having a different sort of perspective, a different cultural perspective, having come from Canada. Mm-hmm. How does it compare? Do you think overall it's more or, or cheaper or more expensive to raise children in Australia? Is it difficult or easier to raise children in Australia? Well, you know what? It's actually hard to find actual stats on how much a child costs to raise in Canada. I mean, sorry, in Australia. It's uh, <laughs> probably it, I, either, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Canada just came out with stats recently, and I'd have to dig through my notes. Um, I think it was around $360,000 to raise them to the age of, I believe, 17. Whereas in Australia, the data that I could kind of dig up was around $450,000 to raise a child to 18. So it seems as though it's a bit more expensive. I mean, a lot of things are expensive in Australia. (laughs) We're on the edge of the world. It takes a lot to ship things down here. Kids are going to be expensive everywhere. Unfortunately, there are some things that are really expensive when it comes to early childhood education and care costs. Australia is one of the more unaffordable countries when it comes to that. And luckily, things are changing with the government and trying to have better subsidies and support for for parents. But it it, it is extremely expensive anywhere to have kids. And that's a problem all over the world, especially when there's conversations about birth rates dropping. And if you want to keep up with the economy, where's a really great place to support parents and their return to work when it comes to early childhood education and care? This cost of living crisis, I can't help but think that this is going to have repercussions for generations to come. I mean, so many people wait until they can afford to buy a house, build a house. Mm -hmm. My stepdaughter, who's just got married, they waited to build the house first and then get married. So she's just gotten married, she's 35, no children yet, so no grandies from her yet. And I can't help thinking that this is going to be a bit of a trend. I can't help but agree <laughs> with that. I mean, life is so expensive. Food, if you rent or mortgage, everyone has less disposable income. And there's a lot of job uncertainty that's coming up with the rise of AI as well. And so all of those situations kind of play into the cost of living and how expensive it is to have kids. I mean, with young with couples who are considering parenthood, there are things that come into play. Obviously, cost that we've just talked about, climate considerations. Data shows that there's just less children being born with the rate around 1.63 births per, you know, per woman, I guess. Everyone's choosing to have kids later in life, and that's due to wanting to have some kind of economic stability. And sometimes taking a while to find someone that you want to potentially cohabit with 
whether that's marrying or de facto or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of single parents who are also choosing the path of having children by themselves. And if that's the case, there's a lot of fertility costs that also come into play as you wait later in your life. So all of those are expensive. Like none of that is cheap. (laughs) I agree with you. I think it's going to have an economic impact on the future of, I guess, society, life, (laughs) Australia, everyone. I don't think we'll see it for a while and then suddenly we'll go, Mm -hmm. whoa, how did that happen? It's like, well, what did you think when young people couldn't afford to buy houses and had to rent in far-flung suburbs? I mean, how can you juggle childcare when you're doing that? I mean, I'm lucky because I live in Canberra and it's actually quite child-friendly. However, we do have the highest costs of childcare in Australia. When I was a single parent and suddenly single, it was extraordinary. It was prohibitive. I do think, gosh, if I was in like a major capital city, how the hell would I be organising two separate drop-offs before work, public transport, parking and everything else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's extremely hard. And I hear it all the time from other parents who are like, I am just barely making ends meet, you know, and especially with the uncertainty of inflation and what's happening with rates. <laughs> a lot of A lot of people are really struggling. And if if they're struggling now, why would you want to have kids, right? Like that's another consideration. Like maybe we wait, maybe we don't, maybe we choose to travel instead. Like those are real considerations indeed. Yeah, definitely. And then as you know, in the space that I've working with my current book, paying off your mortgage as well, amongst other mouths to feed and everything else. But with all of this, I can imagine, you know, for someone who's expecting a child, like it's scary. And I know that, and I'm sure you experience the same thing. You're pregnant, you're you're excited about it. And once people have got over the, should I ask if she's expecting or not? Is she just fat or is that a bump? And then you get all the questions. And invariably it'll be, firstly, all the horror stories about emergency cesareans and things that have gone wrong that why you tell a pregnant woman that in the first place, I don't know. And then secondly, oh my goodness, the cost of raising children these days. It's scary. It is scary, but I think like anything, if you prepare, you're going to be in a better place. And unfortunately, sometimes you can't prepare, right? Sometimes it's like, whoops, (laughs) we're going to have a bundle of joy. How do we navigate that? But if you can do some of those simple things like budgeting, being frugal, running the numbers ahead of time. Yes, yes, exactly. Running those numbers ahead of time, having a plan of if you're going to take parental leave, how is that going to impact your earning capacity, your career? and also your superannuation in the future, just having a game plan around that is so, so important because it'll empower parents to be able to make the right choices for themselves because it just gets more expensive. And with early childhood education costs as well, there are numbers that can be run. What if we return to work at three days versus four days versus et cetera? Just having that information helps people make better decisions, right? Mm. But certainly there are a lot of decisions to be made and a key one then is superannuation. And I must say when you read off the figures for what women have in super versus what men have, I was a bit Mm -hmm. scared about that. I was even scared about how low both of those are. I'm blessed to have really, really good superannuation. It's it's hard for me to fathom because I'm I'm blessed with this that a lot of people don't. So what are the sort of decisions that women should be making as they go into their child producing years? Is there a better way to say that? Um, <laughs> as they have children, how do they make decisions around super? 
That's a really great one. There's a couple different things that you can do. I think if you know how long you're going to take off, doing some calculations in terms of how much money you might potentially need. And if it's possible, you you can consider salary sacrificing into that ahead of time if you know that you're planning on taking that time off. There's also co-contributions that can happen by a spouse or a de facto partner into super. There's also uh, government contributions as well that can happen. So it depends on what your income level is, but it is worth looking into. So there's a couple different things that you can do in terms of super, but just being aware, being aware of what that gap is for you might be really important. So again, coming running running the numbers in terms of where you are. And I know that there's lots of great charts online that tell you where you should be based on your age group. <laughs> In terms, in terms of retirement, they <laughs> How are. How do I get that old? <laughs> They're depressing. Yeah. <laughs> so just just planning those things ahead because super is a really fantastic vehicle in terms of tax savings, and if you can take advantage of that, that might help you in the long run because we want to see less parents or especially women in poverty and homelessness <laughs> in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And you're right. This is a, a real issue. And then I guess I want to talk a little bit about providing for your children. This whole debate, often when people have a child, they might think about setting up a special savings or investment account for their kids, and often grandparents are willing to do this. Mm -hmm. What's your view on this? Well, I think it depends on what your values are. The way that I kind of personally do it is I do have some investments for my children. But I'm not planning on telling them because I really want to see what they do with their own <laughs> lives. And I know that my parents have helped and supported me in certain ways that have helped me get ahead. And again, this comes from a place of privilege. And if you're for generational wealth, there are a couple considerations, whether you want to invest for the child in your own name, in a minor's account, a formal trust, there's insurance and investment bonds through super. There's, there's a couple different ways to do that if you want to do that. But it really comes down to your values. What I do want to preface before you, anyone, and none of this is financial advice, what I would want to preface is if you are considering investing for your kid or putting money away, make sure you're looking after yourself first. Make I sure you're super popped up. So agree yeah, with that. Make sure, yeah, make sure you've got your mortgage under control. Make sure that all of that, because that is so much more important. Your kid has time and time for compounding and time for making money and investing. What you have less of is time and therefore making sure that you're in a good place is much more impactful. And uh, <laughs> I hear that you're agreeing. So <laughs> we're well, on yes. the same page. And, and I must say, I didn't turn 18 or 21 and have a big hunk of money that was given to me. So that probably influences a lot of my thoughts on this. My yeah. dad now does give $500. He's now started in recent years giving to my children each for for them for their birthdays and I'm a little bit conflicted about that originally I said no but then I thought oh look he wants to do that so it's there but they're very much aware that they can't touch it but mm. I'm kind of I guess a little bit morally against making saving for their future a huge priority for me because firstly I think I get better results if I focus on myself <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah. secondly I think I have control over that too <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, it is right. Like if you as a parent can pay down your mortgage, or you as a parent can ensure that your retirement is set, that is less stress for your kids as yeah. they as you age, right? Because that that's a real thing for generations to be like, I have aging parents, now I have to look after them, I have to look after their health, where are they going to live? Are they going to be with me? Are there concerns? And if there's financial issues that happen, 
it's going to be very stressful. So looking after yourself is the most important. Similarly to you, I don't want to spoil my kids and I don't want them to get free money, but I do know that there's potentially a time and place. And my, my, when I, when I bought my, my first apartment, my parents did help me a little bit. And I would love to do that for my kids because at that point, I've already saved up the money. I already had an intention. And in a way, it's like a living inheritance that has compounded and helped me in my future as I'm now a parent and, and need to provide for my kids. So if I could do that for my kids, I would love to. But I also want them to, to show and prove that they understand money. And that comes back down to me as a parent, ensuring that I can instill good money, value and habits into them without them being cheap versus frugal, like, you know, having those conversations, understanding your value and so forth. So I I agree with you in in a lot of that. And there's so much in there that you've hinted at in terms of modeling good money behavior Mm -hmm. for your kids, because so much of what we understand about money, our ability to earn it, attract it, keep it, invest it comes from those sort of things that you hear your parents say and how they are with, with money. Having those good values to be a good model is just so important, but it's often more tricky to get it right than you might think. I worry that my kids come away with a, oh, because I'm a bit frugal. Sometimes I'll say, oh, but that costs a lot of money or, and I've got to sort of say, yeah, but you're actually worth it. Like this is actually valuable. Yeah. 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 And and those things are crazy. I, as I was writing this book, I, I have a whole part on parenting money mindset. And I really kind of realized as a parent how much I think about my parents' values and how they impacted me. And so that kind of leads on to also as a parent, how do you teach your kids, which is a, a huge part of it as well. Yeah, definitely. And it is becoming harder in a way, I think, because you don't they're not seeing physical money as much. Mm-hmm. Although I'm very big on making sure, ensuring my kids have their independence over their money. They can decide how they spend their pocket money and whether they make good choices or not. And the first time my eldest had pocket money, he made some very bad choices. The first week he went to school and bought ice creams for himself and his friend, spent most of the money on his friend actually. And then the second week he actually lent money to another kid that he never got back. Uh, but those are really important lessons to learn, right? And had he not had that experience to go through that, you wouldn't be able to have a conversation about it. You know, we're we're not perfect. Our kids aren't going to be perfect. So yeah, just having open money conversations is so valuable. Yeah, much better to be burnt at age five and learn from that. (laughs) Yeah, than at age 25 when you're, you know, (laughs) dropping, I don't know, hundreds of dollars. (laughs) So I want to backtrack a little bit and actually talk about you and mm-hmm. how did you get interested in personal finance? Yeah, great question. I came to, I mean, I've always been interested in personal finance. I have no clue how, maybe maybe because of my parents' frugal Eastern European background and, you know, lifestyle, I'm not sure. It kind of was a part of me. I, I remember my dad saying, you have to put away 10% of everything that you earn. And that was just maybe one of my first money introductions of thinking of putting away 10% into a savings account. So I've always been kind of interested in it. I came across financial independence, retire early movement later in life. Uh, I think at that time I was already living in Australia. I was making more money than I ever had. I had more savings. It was a very exciting time and I I didn't know what to do with the savings. I didn't want to buy property. What do you do? How do rich people get rich? And so I got interested in investing and I went down that rabbit hole and started documenting my journey 
which led me to, I guess, where I am now. So in between that journey, I ended up working at a at a fintech company. And yeah, I, this, yeah, who, who would have guessed that just by liking something, documenting it, you end up kind of changing the trajectory of your life, which is probably similar to you as well in some yeah, ways. Yeah, well, we don't, well, I think it's changed a lot, mm-hmm. a lot actually, really. And, but I think, you know, going back perhaps 20 years ago for me, like we just in Australia, we didn't have conversations about money. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time around Chinese people. So I spent time studying in mainland China and then time in Taiwan. So I was mm-hmm. often around at uh, events within, with the Chinese diaspora here in Australia, plus my time overseas. And they talk money. <laughs> they talk money. They talk yeah, investing. Yeah. Yeah. But my Australian friends, you know, Australian as in non-ethnically Chinese friends, would not talk about money. And I always found that really fascinating. Why, why do you think that was the case? Um, a lot of social norms, I think, you know, it was considered mm-hmm, impolite mm-hmm. to ask people how much they were earning or to talk about money or to talk about investments, a range of different things. And I had this really odd situation once where my ex-husband and I were looking at, at buying another investment property and we looked at a property and the property was pretty good. And I asked for a, a, a copy of the draft contract to have a look. And I realized that a friend of mine that I knew quite well owned the property. So <laughs> I actually contacted her. <laughs> And went, oh, I see you own this property and you're selling it. And she went, yes. And she was really reserved and I was really reserved. And I got off the phone and my ex-husband said, well, how much does she want for it? And I went, you don't talk price. (laughs) It's not our culture. And it's like Chinese culture. I would have done her a deal. And you know each other, found a way. But I think it's just that, that level of politeness, right? You just don't sort of talk with friends about investments or things like that. But it is really changing, which is really exciting. Yeah, I found that as well. And I think in Canada, maybe because I grew up in Vancouver, which is a very expensive city, property is very expensive, wages aren't very high. And not a lot of my friends also talked about money or it was kind of awkward as well, because if you bought property, chances are your parents helped you because of the, the cost. And so it was it was awkward if you had money because you didn't want to talk about it. And it, it was awkward if you didn't have money because you also didn't want to talk about it. And then when I came to Australia, I was actually surprised with how much people talked about property and money. Yeah. And that allowed me to kind of open up those conversations, I think. And I don't know, maybe it allowed me to come out of my shell to talk about it because it felt like I couldn't previously. But I was also younger then. And life was different. I didn't have, I didn't have maybe career perspectives um, <laughs> that I do now. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. And I'm glad that your perspective is that it has changed because it sounds like mm-hmm. it really has over the last however many years. And that's a really positive thing. So in terms of your investment strategy, so you've part of Get Rich Slow. So how does that kind of encapsulate your philosophy around investing? Yeah. The Get Rich Slow Club is a collaboration between Tash from Tash Invest and Perler, and I, I work at Perler. So it's an awesome kind of podcast that we get to kind of talk about how to get rich slow. And it's kind of a club, right? Like a whole bunch of us are on this journey doing different things. It's not a get rich quick scheme or a casino or gambling. The idea is, I think, as we all think, is you, you work, you invest, and you kind of keep doing the same thing, you automating. And over time, hopefully compound interest will do its thing and it'll bring you to a better and more prosperous place. And that's that's the idea be, behind the Get Rich Slow Club. 
I do really like Perla's auto invest function. So I'm a Perla user. Yes. In fact, I think I was the second person, second external person to actually trial the Perla scheme. So I've been an early adopter and I really, really like how easy it is. Oh, fantastic. And it's evolved a lot over over the years as well, hasn't it? Yeah. The whole platform. It has. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot more functionality now. And actually, recently, we bought some US shares through it, which we're really excited about too. Oh, yay. Yes. Diversification. Yeah, exactly. And they've got micro-investing strand. And also, you can sign up for your kids. So it's all all happening. So (laughs) it's a one-stop wealth management space, which is really fantastic. And I'm I'm really grateful to be able to work at a company that really aligns with my values and supports what I'm doing. And I love working in tech. So it's, and Auto Invest is actually one of the first products I worked on at Perler as well. So just revamping that, that whole feature was one of my first jobs. <laughs> it works really well. So one right. final question, which is, and you mentioned a mm-hmm. few times references to frugal upbringing, but do you have a frugalista tip to share? Oh, Yes. I love to buy something secondhand and then use it. And hopefully I look after it very well and then sell it for the same price. And there are some times when you can sell it for more as well. But that's that's what I like to do. So what kind of things? Kids things, clothes, furniture? Yeah, um, especially there's some name brand kid stuff that people love furniture wise. And if you look look after it really well, if you've already bought it secondhand, you can sell it for the same price. I've sold my motorcycle for more than I bought it for. <laughs> so th- things like that you you can do, but you have to look after your stuff and with with the intention that you're going to sell it because I feel as though I look after it better if I'm thinking about it that way as well. Yeah, that's a good point too. And I guess too, like sometimes when people sell things, they don't always present them very well or they don't always look mm. after them prior to sell. So if you are actually looking after it and you maybe fixed it a bit, done stuff, it makes sense. And take good take good photos. Take good good photos as well. <laughs> good description, good photos, good lighting. It helps selling your things as opposed to having a whole bunch of junk in your garage in the background in the photo. <laughs> Fabulous. So Anna, how can people find you? How can people find the Get Rich Slow podcast? Yeah, um, Get Rich Slow Club. Just look it up on wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me at Anna Christina on any social channel and you can find my book kids ain't cheap wherever you get your books excellent well congratulations on the launch and hope it does super well so kids ain't cheap in most major bookstores now and if you've enjoyed this conversation and others please do join the joyful frugalista facebook group thank you thank you you've been listening to the joyful frugalista with serena bird and of course sound has been by neil hadley Every night I lay my head down
stop.